This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. We'll open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 15, Mark 15, and um, so thankful for Lindsay stepping in last week, was uh, honored to preach at Temple Baptist Church in Newport News, which I pastored from 1995 to 2000, and um, was able to preach there for their 75th anniversary as a church, and so it was a blessing to see people we hadn't seen in a long time, blessing for them to see us, and especially our, our children. Two out of our three children were born when we were at Temple, and so Caleb was able to come home from college, and so he's the one they remember the most, so he's the oldest, and so they were able to see him, and it was just great to... Uh, to see people, and to see people especially that came to know Christ during those years, and that to see they're still walking strong um, in the Lord. So thanks for your prayers. We were able to, to do that, and so thankful for Lindsay being here. So we're going to look this morning at the meaning of the cross as we get ready to go into this special week as believers. And so this is a text that takes us right into the heart of God. Mark 15, and let's look at the first 39 verses of chapter 15 today. Follow along in God's word as we read together. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd and to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. 
And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Father, we pray now that you would give us grace to understand your word and that you would take us deeper into the meaning of the cross and thus deeper into your heart and deeper into what it means to take up our own cross and to follow you as disciples. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bible scholar N.T. Wright tells about a conversation that he had with an archbishop. And the archbishop was telling a story about one of his predecessors, an, an earlier archbishop. And, and one day, three sort of spiritually hardened teenage boys came to see this particular archbishop, and they wanted to sort of make a joke out of confessing their sins. And so they, they came to the archbishop with this whole litany of, of horrible, heinous sins, which, which they had not committed. And so two of them came, and they, they confessed their sins, and they ran out of the sanctuary just laughing. And then they got to the, the third boy. And so the third boy got up and he confessed to just a, a long list of, of terrible and, and ridiculous sins. And the archbishop said to him, he said, now sort of as penance for all of these sins that you say you've committed, I want you to walk to the front of the sanctuary and I want you to look at the picture of Jesus and there was a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross. And he said, I want you to walk to the front of the sanctuary and I want you to look up at the picture of Jesus and say, you did all this for me and I don't care that much. 
And so the boy walked up to the front and he, sa- he looked up at the picture of Jesus on the cross and he said, you did all this for me and I don't care that much. And he repeated it a second time, but he could not repeat it a third time because he broke down in tears. And the, the archbishop said to N.T. Wright, the reason that I know this story so well is because I was that third young man. And, and Wright then goes on to say, there is something about the cross, something about Jesus dying there for us, which leaps over all the theoretical discussions, all the possibilities of how we explain it this way or that way, and it grasps us. And when we are grasped by it, somehow we have a sense that what is grasping us is the love of God. And may God's love grasp us today as we look at the meaning of the cross. So what do we see here in in, in chapter 15? The first thing that we see is, is that Jesus is delivered by the council. Delivered by the council. Verse 1 As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now, they delivered Jesus over to Pilate for two reasons. First, they don't have the authority on their own to sentence someone to death, and the religious leaders want Jesus dead. And second, they deliver him over to the Roman governor because it's more politically expedient for them. They will be able to say, well, it was actually the Romans that carried out the crucifixion. So it gives them more political coverage to do it this way. And so they deliver him over to Pilate. And in verse 2, it says that Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this tells us what the religious leaders have told Pilate about Jesus. They didn't go to Pilate and accuse Jesus of blasphemy. If they had done that, Pilate would have dismissed them with a flick of his wrist. Pilate is a pagan. He doesn't care anything about blasphemy against God. He doesn't care anything about internal Jewish theological discussions. But he cares a lot if somebody is claiming to be a king. That would get Pilate's attention. And so he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And the answer that Jesus gives is typically Jesus. It's brilliant. It is thought-provoking. It is neither a straight affirmation or, or a straight denial. It is designed to provoke the person asking the question to think. And Jesus was great at doing this. You have said so. And the sense of it is, Jesus is saying to Pilate, you would do well to consider that question. And Jesus is saying to us, you would do well to consider that question. Verses three through five. And the chief priest accused him of many things And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And in handling 
this with silence and refusing to say more, Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. And in Isaiah 53, 7, Isaiah speaks of the one who will suffer in silence. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The second thing that we see in chapter 15 is death on a cross, verses 6 through 11. Now at the feast, they, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they had asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Sometimes in Easter plays, for instance, you'll sort of get the impression that it was all of the people in Jerusalem that turned against Jesus. You, you sometimes get the impression that it was all, all of the same people that were waving palm branches as Jesus rode in uh, to Jerusalem, that they, they suddenly, they all turned on him and they were crying out, crucify him. That, that, is, that is not the case. Verse 11 makes it clear that this crowd, which was only a tiny fraction of the mass of pilgrims that were in Jerusalem for Passover. Verse 11 makes it clear that this, this crowd is one that has specifically been manipulated by the religious leaders, by the chief priest. This is not some, you know, spontaneous, uh, uh, organic uh, rally calling for the death of, uh, of Jesus. This is... Uh, this is more like one of those spontaneous organic rallies like you see in North Korea, okay, in, in support of the dictator, which is to say not very spontaneous or organic at all. This is sort of a pre-arranged, pre-selected crowd that has been whipped into a frenzy by the chief priest. And Pilate deals with them in verses 12 and following Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now you really get the feeling here that Pilate does not want any part of this. And that's true. He is sort of freaked out. He, he does sense that Jesus is innocent. Pilate's pretty streetwise and savvy. He, he can see through this. He can see something's fishy. He can see that it's out of envy and it's out of a power game that the chief priests want Jesus dead. He can see that. He's also freaked out because Matthew tells us that the night before, his wife has had a dream and so she has sent word to Pilate, have, this man is innocent, have nothing to do with this. But in the end, 
Pilate is a politician who is going to do the most politically expedient thing. And he comes to the conclusion that it is more politically expedient to kill Jesus than to not kill Jesus. He wants to satisfy the crowd. He doesn't want a a riot on his hands. He doesn't want word to get back to Caesar that things are getting out of control in Jerusalem. That would be bad for Pilate. And Pilate is all about Pilate. And so he issues an order that was routine for the Romans. He orders that this man be scourged, flogged, and crucified. They crucified hundreds of thousands. The scourging that Jesus was subjected to was just standard operating procedure before a crucifixion. The victim was stripped, tied to a post, and then beaten within an inch of their lives. The the goal before a crucifixion uh, was to to beat someone right up to the point where they, they, uh, some people even died, in fact, during the flogging itself. But it was an incredibly brutal thing. The crucifixion itself was the most horrible way to die. But this is the interesting thing. In Mark... And in the other Gospels, for that matter, they do not dwell on the physical suffering of Jesus. Now, in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ and and, and, and many passion plays and so forth, that is a big feature, and and it's accurate. It's it's, it's true. I'm not putting that putting it down, that's an accurate depiction, but the gospel writers do not delve into how horrible the physical suffering was. Why? Why? It's because the significant thing for them is not the physical suffering, but the spiritual suffering of Jesus for us for us. Now you get a hint of the concept of substitution even in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11 again. It says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Barabbas instead. The guilty one will be freed, the innocent one will be crucified. And so you see the concept of substitution coming up already. In the movie and the book, The Hunger Games, which is sort of a pretty major uh, hit among teenagers in, in the past few years, there's a depiction of substitution. And it's uh, two sisters. There's an older sister, Katniss. She has a younger sister, Prim. And then the plot of the book and the film revolves around these kids who are, um, they're chosen to, uh, to participate in this contest, these games. And usually the people who get chosen to participate end up dying. It's like a, a fight to the death. And so to be chosen is a horrible thing. It's pretty much a death sentence. And so they choose a name out of this, this bowl, and it's the name of, uh, 
of Prim. And as the authorities are leading her away, her older sister, Katniss, calls out and she says, Stop! I volunteer! I volunteer to take her place. Now, that's a noble thing. I mean, it's, it's a noble thing. Anytime one human being will substitute themselves and volunteer to die for another, obviously. It's, the, it's sacrifice, it's courage, it's substitution. But listen, it's understandable substitution. It's the kind of thing that all of us would like to think that we would do for a loved one, right? We, we, we would like to think that in that situation that we would step up and volunteer to die for a sibling that we love or for a child that we love or you know, for a spouse that we love. We'd like to think that we would, 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 would step up and die for them. But the substitution of Jesus is not like that. Who is Jesus taking the place of? A guilty criminal. Cowardly disciples who all <clears throat> deserted him and fled the night before and left him to face all of this alone. Spineless politicians like Pilate and scheming religious leaders like the Sanhedrin and sinners like you and me whose sins are so repugnant to a holy God that they must be judged. And Jesus steps up and takes our judgment for us, takes our place, takes our judgment, takes our judgment day in our place. It's the innocent one dying for the unworthy. Paul says in Romans 6, 5, 5, 6 through 8, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verses 16 and following, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. The soldiers engage in this sadistic parody, not knowing that they are actually fulfilling prophecy. Again, Isaiah says of the, the suffering servant, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Verses 21 and following, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Again, more fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 22 says of the, of the Messiah, the suffering servant who was to come, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Verses 25 and following. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He could not save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 22, the same psalm that we just looked at. And He's quoting from verse 1 of Psalm 22, where where David is pouring out his heart before God. And when you read the Psalms, you often see this. I mean, the psalmists are, I mean, it's raw emotion. And they don't hold back. And they'll pour out their hearts before God. And often what they're pouring out is a feeling of forsakenness. But we know that in reality, they haven't actually been forsaken by God. In fact, by the end of Psalm 22, David is already asserting his faith in God. And so we, we know that they're, they're freely pouring out a feeling of abandonment, a feeling of forsakenness, but it's not, it's not real forsakenness. It's, it's the feeling that they have. But there is a sense in which, which Jesus is really forsaken in this moment because he's bearing our sins. He's bearing all of the evil of the world which has converged on him. And the, and the father who is pure and holy turns away and judgment falls. That's what the darkness is about. It's, it's, darkness is a symbol of judgment. And all our judgment is, is converging on Jesus in that moment. And there's a sense of utter abandonment by God, utter forsakenness. William Cooper was a, a brilliant English poet and hymn writer. Actually, he wrote many hymns with John Newton, his pastor, who wrote Amazing Grace. And... Um, Cooper loved God, and he knew that God loved him, but he battled with what we would now refer to as clinical depression all of his life, and waves of depression would just come 
over him and he would feel just utterly forsaken um, in those times. And uh, later on, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the great poet, wrote a poem called Cooper's Grave and she paid tribute to William Cooper and his scholarship and his influence and, and to what he endured as he, he, he battled this, had this lifelong battle with depression and feelings of forsakenness. But then Browning transitions to what Jesus was going through on the cross. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning says this, Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, this universe has shaken It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amidst his lost creation that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. You see, Jesus here, and what Elizabeth Barrett Browning is saying is that Jesus was forsaken so that we don't have to be. Jesus was experiencing this utter desolation and this judgment so that we don't have to so that we will never have to utter this cry of forsakenness. We have a savior who uttered it in our place. Death on a cross. Third, division of the curtain. Division of the curtain, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is this all about? This was the thick curtain, incredibly thick curtain, that separated the Holy of Holies and the innermost part of the temple from the rest of the temple. No one but the high priest could go beyond that curtain, and he only went once a year and never without blood, never without the blood of animal sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of the people. But the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, it's as if an invisible hand comes and just tears open this thick curtain from top to bottom. And what is God saying to us in doing that? God is saying now to us, you are now invited into my presence because of my son's shed blood. Everyone Everyone is now invited in, into my holy presence because sin has been atoned for. My son's blood has been shed. The blood of the final sacrifice has been shed. And you can now, through Jesus, come in, come into my presence. You can know me. Everyone is invited in. Everyone, in, including Gentiles, including all peoples, every tribe and tongue and race and men and women and people from every background. Everyone is invited in. And we see that in what happens next. The declaration of the centurion. The declaration of the centurion. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. Now remember who this centurion is. He's a Roman soldier, which means he's a pagan 
Gentile. He is hardened to watching people die. The Romans crucified hundreds of thousands of people. It is safe to say, this guy has seen people die on crosses before. He's never seen anything like this. There's something about Jesus that captures his heart and he must have been shocked to hear himself saying the words that passed through his lips. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, this is fascinating because how does Mark begin his gospel? In the very first verse, Mark 1.1, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And when Jesus is baptized, and he's being raised up out of the water at his baptism, a voice comes from heaven, and the Father speaks. And what does the Father say? In Mark 1.11, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. And then, at another crucial point in Mark, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what does the Father say? Mark 9, 7, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Other than the father, the only person in the gospel of Mark that confesses Jesus as the son of God before this point are demon-possessed people. Because the demons who were possessing the people could immediately see who Jesus was. And so the demons would cry out things like, Jesus, son of the most high God. They knew. But up until this point, no sane person has confessed Jesus as a son of God until this Roman soldier, this Gentile, does it. Now, what does this say to us? It says something about missions. Mark is certainly paving the way for the mission of the church, which is to see all peoples from every tribe and tongue come to know the Savior. That's certainly a part of it. And part of it is that Mark is saying, don't give up on the person that you think is the least likely. (laughs) This centurion is the least likely person that you could think of that would be uttering these words. Words that no human being in Mark has uttered to this point. Only the Father has said it. (laughs) What a word of encouragement. Do you have people in your life, family members who are lost, friends who are lost, people that you work with, people that you go to school with who are lost, and you look at them now, and they are so far from God, and you're thinking, they're the least likely person. And sometimes you're tempted to give up. You're tempted to give up praying for them and sharing with them. Remember the cry of the centurion when you feel that way. 
because the Spirit of God can do what you and I can't do. The Spirit of God opens hearts. The Spirit of God turns hearts. That's why it's so important for us to pray. And right now as we finish, I want us to bow in prayer. And if you have your, your card with you that we, that we filled out at the beginning of the year where you put the names of people on that card that you're praying for and sharing with this year, I'd like for you to pull out that card from your wallet or from your purse. And if you don't have it, I hope the names of the people that you're praying for and sharing with are written on your mind and your heart. Because I want us to pray for them. What an opportunity this week to invite them to come to Easter service with us next week. Speak to them this week. Say, look, it's, it's a special day. It's, it's Easter. It's a really special day in my life and at my church. It would really mean a lot to me if you would come with me on Sunday. Would you do that this week? Let's pray for people in our lives. Father, we, we lift up those who are in our lives that don't know you. And Lord, we thank you that you broke through our own sinful hard hearts to save us. And every time you do that, it's a miracle. And so Father, we know that there are people who seem to be far from you now. And maybe they are. <laughs> But we also know that you specialize in resurrection. You are the God who raises the dead and you can take a stony heart and you can turn that into a heart of flesh and you can give new life. And so Lord, we, we wanna just intercede for people in our lives that need to know the Savior. Right now, let's just spend, spend some time in silent prayer and just praying for people in our lives that need to know Christ. And Lord, we not only pray for those that need to know you, we pray, we pray that you would help us to know you better. We pray that you would incline our hearts more to you uh, this week as we look forward to Easter. Lord, even as we think about suffering brothers and sisters in, in Egypt today and those in many other parts of the world that are persecuted so severely for their faith. We pray that you would use that inspiration to help us be more serious about our own faith, about counting the cost, about taking up the cross, about real discipleship.
discipleship that's willing to give, discipleship willing to sacrifice, discipleship willing to lay it all on the line for the one who gave his life for us. And we pray it in his name, amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Jesus, we're here for you. We'd love to come alongside, pray with you. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about serving Christ with us as a part of this church family, um, we'd love to just celebrate that with you. There's a need for prayer. There are people here who would love to pray with you before you leave today. And so in just a moment, we're gonna stand and sing. I'm gonna be here at the front and uh, love to just encourage you and pray with you today as God is speaking to your heart. Let's, let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.